Lord, thank you today for the privilege of being in your house. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us. I pray for boldness and confidence as we declare your word. I pray for hearts that are courageous and willing to receive what the Lord would say today. Because Lord, our desire is not to play around. Our desire is to grow and to become the men and women of God that you've called us to be. So Lord, I pray that anything as we say each week, Lord, anything it's of me, let it fall to the ground. Only let people hear it. But God, those things that are of your spirit that are birthed in your heart, I pray, God, that they would find good soil and that that soil, that they would produce fruit and produce a good harvest. Thank you that your word will not return void. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes, people wonder why God required Israel to deal so thoroughly with their enemies. And I believe that at times we have a misdirected concern and compassion for the enemies of God. God had a reason for commanding the children of Israel to totally destroy their enemies. And God had a reason to tell them to utterly destroy the remnants of their sinful practices. Would you turn your Bibles with me to the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy chapter 7. While you're there as well, then you can also put your finger there. And later on, we're going to go to Joshua chapter 10. We hit on this last week, and on Wednesday night we hit on it, but we're going to touch on it again. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations... The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Say that with me. Then you must destroy them totally. Let's say that one more time then you must destroy them totally. It says when God hands them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. That was God's command to them. I want you to read with me the next line. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Say that again. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Highlight that in your Bible. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. And burn their idols in the fire. For why? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possessions. The Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. 
and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that your Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But to those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Okay? Now, when you go home, I'd like you just to read over this portion of Scripture three, four, five, six times. Just every day when you get up this week, would you do me one favor? Would you read this portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 7? And it tells us, it gives us instruction why God told the children of Israel to deal so viciously with the enemies of God. I think we're going to find that there's an application of this to our spiritual lives as well. The command that was given was to destroy them totally. And that command has often been thought of as unethical for a loving God. However, we need to make several points and keep this in mind concerning these people. The first thing is they deserve to die for their sins. Studies of their religion, their literature, and their archaeological remains reveal that they were the most morally depraved culture on the face of the earth at that time. The second thing, they persisted in their hatred of God. They just kept on. I mean, they had that endurance to continue to resist God, to hate God. Had they repented, God would have spared them as he spared the Ninevites. Remember how evil and ungodly the Ninevites were? But when God said, I'm going to bring judgment upon you, they repented. And Jonah said, I knew that you would do that, God. I knew if I preached and told them you were going to judge them, that you would be gracious and you would forgive their sins and you would have mercy on them. That's why I didn't want to go. Remember? That's what Jonah said. I knew that you're a merciful God, yet repentance seems to be out of the question for these people. God in his foreknowledge understood that. The third thing is the Canaanites constituted a moral cancer that had the potential of introducing idolatry and immorality, which would spread rapidly among the Israelites and bring about the destruction of God's own people. Why were they to totally destroy their enemies? Why were they to make no treaties, to make no covenants with them? Why were they to show no mercy? Because if they did, if they did that, if they do not utterly destroy their enemies, then their enemies are going to destroy their children in the future. All of the battles that Israel fought, all of the victories that they won, all the work that they have done, all of the building that they have accomplished will mean nothing because their future will be sealed. Because God in his foreknowledge saw, and he said, if you let these enemies of God live, your sons and daughters will be drawn away from me because of that. Your families will have no future. Why would they have no future? Because the hearts of the children will be turned away from God, and they would be destroyed by the consequences of their sin. God was very honest and straightforward with them. He says, if you don't destroy these enemies... These enemies, if you let them survive, they're going to weasel their way into your families. 
They're going to weasel their way into the lives of your children. They're going to deceive your children. And eventually it's going to bring about the destruction of your children. It's going to ruin their future. They will have no future. God in his foreknowledge and love warned them what the results would be if they did not obey. May I say this to you? That the salvation of your family must be the top priority in your life. The salvation of your family must be the top priority in your life. Where are your children? Where are your grandchildren going to spend eternity is much more important than if you leave them an inheritance. It's much more important than if they're popular at school or if they go to a good college or if they excel at sports, if they make a lot of money, or even the degree of happiness and personal fulfillment. Well, I want my kids to be happy. Let me say something to you. 50 years of unhappiness on this life cannot compare to eternity separated from God. More important than anything else that we have to establish as priority in our lives is that my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren come to know Jesus and spend eternity with him. The eternal destination of your family must be more important than you getting a promotion, than you buying a bigger house, than you succeeding in business, than you having them or anyone else understand or agree with your decisions and standards, or even having your children like or agree with what standards you take, their eternal destination is much more important than that. Let me just talk to the guys for a moment. Gentlemen, God has established you as a leader of your family. It's up to you as the husband, as the leader in your home to uphold God's standards for your household. It's up to you to protect your family. If you do not protect them, who is going to? If you do not and they are destroyed, who is to blame? One of the principles from the Bible is this, that if you warn someone, the prophet, the watchman on the wall, if they did not warn and someone was destroyed because they did not warn them or didn't sound the alarm, their blood was upon their hands. However, if they warned, if they told them, and they rejected and they refused, then they were innocent of their blood. But you and I have a responsibility as leaders in our family to protect our household. Who's to blame? You are. If Israel did not utterly destroy the enemies, if they tolerated them or their sinful practices even a little, they would perpetually have to deal with this problem. God wanted their lives to be good. He wanted their lives to be prosperous. He wanted their level of satisfaction. He wanted their joy to be complete. And if they did not utterly destroy their enemies at this time, their enemies would live to continually be a thorn in their side. Their enemies would just perpetually wear them down. You know, it's almost like you have a problem and you fix it a little bit. You know what I mean? You got a problem at your house and you fix it a little bit. And then a week later, it's still there. And then, you know, you just kind of cover up the surface of the problem and the roof's still leaking and you think, well, I'll just keep replacing the drywall. Well, you can replace the drywall all day long and you can come in every time it rains and replace your drywall and paint, you know, the drywall and fix it back up and dry out your carpet. 
But somewhere along the line, you're going to need to get up on the roof and fix the problem with the roof. There's no use fixing the things that you can see if you're not going to take care of the real issue. And what God was saying to the children of Israel is these people will be a perpetual problem, not just to you, but who are they coming after? They're coming after your children. They're coming after your grandchildren. They're going to come after your nieces and your nephews. They're going to come after those people who are most important in your lives. And again and again, they would lure them away from God. That's why they were told again in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, it talked about how they were to deal with their enemies. It said, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their God, and you will sin against the Lord your God. And the implications is, you will go back into bondage, and your enemies will do these very things to you and your children. And I don't want that to happen to you and your children. So you utterly destroy them, solve the problem. These enemies of God were going to be destroyed. God was going to deal with them in the future. They were set up for destruction. God was going to address their sin. The Israelites didn't need to have to suffer that, and their children should not suffer that same consequence. There are some things that need to be dealt with once and for all. How many times do you want to fight the same fight? Why would you want to leave around something that's going to tempt and torment your children? If you know that eventually it's going to destroy your marriage, why would you let that around? If you know eventually it's going to destroy your children's future, why would you let that around? When you have the opportunity to stop it, to end it, why wouldn't you go ahead and finish it off so that there's no hope of it coming back and hurting you or your family? And That's what God was saying to them. Not only they were to deal with that, God told them also to destroy the remnants of their enemies' idolatrous worship. Verse 5, it says, this is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Why? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Why are you to destroy them? Because you're God's special people. Because you are set apart for God. They were not only to kill their enemies, they were to utterly destroy the remnants of their sinful practices. Notice God commanded them to do this. I want you to notice I did say he commanded them to do it because God knows the thoughts and intents of man's heart. They were to remove any hint of the sinful past, lest they or their children be drawn back into that bondage. Do you see that principle? What were they to do? They were to break down the altars. 
They were to smash the stones. They were to tear down those altars so that there's no remnant left of it. They were to smash or crush or destroy the sacred stones. They were to cut down their Asherah poles. And they were to burn their idols in the fire so that all that remained was dust. And then they would spread that dust out so that there was no remnant, that there was nothing left of this form of idolatry. Can you please tell me, I'd just like to know this. Why would anyone in their right mind want to preserve the very things that are enemies of God? Why do they fight to preserve the things that are going to bring death and destruction to their family? We're sitting here, we're saying, it's a shame that they destroyed these people. If these people survived, if their sinful practices survived, then the children of Israel had no future. They had no future. The only future that they had was one of destruction and death and loss and grief and pain and sorrow. What would possess someone who truly loves their family to want to preserve the very thing that is going to destroy the people who are closest to them? I just can't understand that. I mean, when you lay it out before people, it does not make sense to me. You know, my Bible says that we're to flee the very appearance of evil. Why do we want to preserve those things? I have a video I'd like you to see. Well, it sounds like something out of a horror movie, a huge snake creeping into a little girl's bed in the night. But it really happened, and the ending was tragic. Correspondent Susan Roberts has the story. The 911 call came early yesterday from a rural home in central Florida. What's the problem? Tell me exactly what happened. Our snake, we have a Burmese python, and she's about 12 foot long. She got out of the cage last night and got into the baby's crib and strangled her to death. The python turned out to be about eight feet long, more than enough to crush the life out of two-year-old Cheyenne Hare. It had escaped from its terrarium and slithered into the little girl's bedroom. Its owner, the boyfriend of Cheyenne's mother, discovered it too late. This morning he wakes up and notices, observes that the snake is missing. He immediately runs to the uh, infant's uh, room and the way he described it, the uh, snake was on the child. The snake's owner stabbed the snake with a knife and pulled the child away, but she was dead. The python was unlicensed, and the owner may also face child endangerment charges. Susan Roberts, CBS News, Washington. You'll have to excuse me. I think some people are just idiots. You're surprised? You keep an eight-foot python in your house? Pythons, by their nature, eat and kill little things. That's what they do by nature. That's how they survive. They survive. That's their nature. They kill and eat little things. And they would bring this eight-foot python into their house, and they would let it stay in their house. And python was in its cage laying around. It was sitting there, and it was getting hungry. And when they throw it a mice, it'd be like, hey, this is pretty cool. It got hungry. And here lays their little child. The child had bite marks on her head where the snake was trying to get its mouth over the baby's head. And then people stand back and act like they're surprised. I'm just like, well, you're stupid.
I feel sorry for the child. But you know what? A court found the mom and dad, the mom and her boyfriend, both of them guilty in a court of law of manslaughter. And they're doing 12 years in prison. Now, I'm sorry that this happened to them. This is a terrible shame. But when we look at life, there are consequences to the decisions that people make. You bring an eight-foot Burmese python in your house, and you let it in a cage with a quilt over the top of it, and you let your baby lay there, chances are it's going to get out and bite her. And when it does, don't be surprised that that happens. Because that's the nature of a snake. It eats little things. And the little thing that it ate happened to be their daughter. See, I have a different philosophy. What they tried to do is they tried to bring this snake in their house and they tried to contain it. They tried to watch over it. But you know, you can't watch over things all the time. And there's a lot of things that you can't contain and you can't keep in a cage. And what happens once it gets out of the cage? Well, we saw what happened. I have a philosophy about snakes myself. Much different. They can live in the desert and they can live in the zoo. But they can't live close to me or the people who I care about. Whenever we find that if a snake is in my neighborhood, I kill it. It's the bottom line. Now, some people say, oh, it's nature. Well, it's my nature to kill them. I, <laughs> I don't like them. I don't want them around. If they're up in the mountain, if they're in Arizona in the desert, and I don't happen to be in Arizona in the desert, and I'm not going to go around and mess with them too much, but if they come into my territory, I'm going to kill them. I shared on Wednesday night, we were down at the lake in uh, New Jersey. Lori's parents have a cabin at the lake. And the kids, when the kids were little, there was always this, we always have a dock, and their grandparents have a dock. And this, like, seriously, five or six foot long, snake we're sitting there and this snake comes out of the water now the dock is probably this high and then it's probably this high above the water so i hope i'm not exaggerating probably about like this this far above the water this big snake comes out of the water and climbs up just just like and climbs up on the dock without any effort at all and Lori starts squealing oh snake the kids are there the kids are little at this time and i realized this thought goes through my mind oh no this is our vacation place this snake is going to cost me my vacation for the next few years how much is that going to cost let's see If you rent a cabin for a week, you can't get a cabin for a week for 500 bucks. And I get it for free. You know what I mean? And a weekend away, a weekend's away is at least 150 bucks. And I get it for free. And if I let this snake stay here, then my kids are never going to go back into that water again. They're always going to be afraid. I can just hear Lori now. I don't want to go down. Did you see that snake? I can see the kids, they're going to say, because the kids loved going to the lake. I need to do something about the spiders now. Okay? This snake, he comes up there, and he comes up, and he climbs up. They had a glider, and the snake climbed up on the glider, and just whoop, whoop, 
You know, like one of those wooden pressure-treated gliders. And he's just stretched all out there in the sun. And we were over under the tree by our grandfather's dock. And so I walked over to him, and he, you know, he was just sunning himself. Now, I'm afraid of snakes. I just want you to know, honestly, I don't like snakes. Like, if he would have turned around and said, boo, I would have squealed like a girl. But there, he crawled up on that thing and just sitting there. So I walked up behind him, and I grabbed him by the back of the head. And I started squeezing his head. And the kids will remember this, because I squeezed his head as hard as I could. And he wraps his arm. And if you ever had a snake wrap himself around you, he stinks. I don't know if he peed on me or what, but he, or, or did whatever he does. But I squeezed him, and his little eyes are popping out of his head. And I'm squeezing, I'm squeezing with everything I have. And I let people see him. Ah, and, and he has this ball wrapped around my arm. And I think I let the kids touch him. You can touch him. And then I kept squeezing his head as hard as I could. And his little eyes are popping. He's like, I killed him. And then I took him back in the parking area. And I took a shovel and I cut his head off. Just to make sure I actually did kill him. I didn't want him to fake on me. But I wanted my kids to see something that day. I wanted them to see this thing's coming into our swimming area. Now, I'm glad he wasn't in water moccasin and bite me. But this thing's coming into our swimming area and the place where we play. We don't have to be afraid of him. But we're not going to let him around. If he brings his friends, we got a shovel for them. We're going to cut their heads off too. We're not letting them around. You know, the thing is, if I would have squealed like a girl and ran and said how big he was and, oh my goodness... And hadn't done that. My kids would probably be afraid of snakes. And my kids don't have any reason to be afraid of snakes now. Because they've seen their dad grab him by the back of the head, squeeze his head until his eyeballs pop out, and then cut the rest of his head off. Okay? So that they don't, and they've touched him. He can't do anything to them. Now, we don't let him play in our yard. We don't let him get a chance where he can bite us. We don't hang out with him. And if he crawled into my bed at night... I probably would squeal like a girl. But we did something that day that I think can apply to our spiritual lives. There's an application that we can make to our spiritual lives. And let's look back at the book of Joshua. In chapter 10, we talked about this Sunday, we talked about this Wednesday. The Gibeonites, the five kings line up and they come to attack the Gibeonites. When they do that, Joshua goes out to meet them. And God says, I'm going to give you the victory over these five kings. You're going to possess the land. They're not going to torment you. They're not going to draw your children away. You're going to utterly destroy them, and you're going to claim victory over them. So they begin to beat them. God extends the length of the day. God literally caused, he literally caused the sun to stand still, the scripture says, the sun and the moon. He lengthened the day. However, God did that. These five kings, these five arrogant, I don't know what word to say about them. They were horrible people who stood against God, who were arrogant against God's people, who challenged God's people. Now they have run and they've hidden in a cave. They've taken refuge in a cave. Verse 16. Now the five kings had had fled and hidden in the cave at Makeda. And when Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave of Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave. 
and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Underline that in your Bible. But don't, look to the person next to you and say, don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear. And don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But a few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army, and they would later be cleaned up. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Why? Because they saw the power of God upon their lives. Did you hear what Joshua said to them? He said, we got them on the run. Don't stop now until you utterly destroy them. Let me say to you today that you have the enemy on the run. Don't stop now. Don't ease up now until you utterly destroyed him. Don't be satisfied with the partial victory in your life. Don't be satisfied with, well, the enemy's off of my back. You and I need to utterly destroy him and his works of darkness in our lives. In verse 22, and I want you to see this. Joshua said, open up the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. Now, I want you to understand here. Those words that Joshua said to his leaders were the exact words that his mentor had said to him. They were the exact words that God had to speak to Joshua over and over and over again. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. God's going to give you the victory. God is fighting for you. He had to hear that again and again, and somehow that got into his spirit. But Joshua learned something. He learned it from the victories he had experienced. He had something that he could pass on to the next generation of warriors and of leaders. And what he did is he called those five kings out, and then he called the leaders of his army forward. And he made these guys, now see, whenever they were defeated, they would have to put their faces in the ground, just as a symbol, as a sign, that they were utterly defeated, that they could do nothing. They had been triumphed over. And he called each one of those leaders, and I imagine there were probably some young guys, it was their first battle, or maybe their second battle, they weren't hardened warriors, this was their first or second battle, but... Joshua saw in them the potential of leadership. And one by one, he called those commanders up. And here is this king who was so arrogant and proud and defiant of the Almighty God. He set himself up to destroy the people of God. And Joshua said, put your foot on his neck. That's probably not right. He's going to kill your daughter if you don't put your foot on his neck. Well, I don't want to be mean. I don't know if I should be so harsh. Oh, he's going to drag your son into bondage. He's going to poke out your son's eyes. He's going to rape your wife and your children. He's going to destroy your family. You're going to let him survive? 
He's going to take everything that you've worked all of your life for, and he's going to mock you and make fun of you. And you want to let him survive? Joshua said, put your foot on his neck. And they put their foot on his neck, and he said, you see how easy this is? This king, who a little while ago seemed so proud and arrogant, he seemed so strong, look at him now. I want you to get that feeling of victory. I want you to see what it's like to overcome. I want you to see what it's like to utterly destroy your enemy. And then Joshua took the sword and he cut their heads right off. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. If he doesn't destroy his enemies, the nation of Israel has little hope of a future. Again and again, they're going to go through the same things. Generation after generation, they're going to go through the same things. It's just going to be a cycle. Now, we're not asking you to drag your neighbor over and have your kids put your foot on their head. In a spiritual sense, though, this is very applicable to us today. I think of my dad. You know the funny thing? Do you ever notice this? You'll find a family who the parents start a business, and then their kids and their grandkids start businesses. And you're like, well, how does that work? The parents just, it's kind of something that they pick up. You know what I mean? You'll find someone who's good at a particular sport. You find a dad who's really good at baseball and or some sport. And you'll find out that their kids are pretty good at baseball. You'll find in families that things like certain jobs, certain things just kind of run in the family. Do you know what I mean? And what that is is some things are better caught than taught. There's sometimes there's things that happen in people's families that, well, my dad was a lawyer. It's, why couldn't I be a lawyer? My dad was a doctor. Why couldn't I be a doctor? My dad started a business. Why couldn't I start a business? My dad fixed problems. Why can't I fix problems? There's something about when you grow up in a particular home that whatever you're around lets you see. And then on a negative sense, that's that way too. My dad beat up my mom, so why shouldn't I? My dad lied. Why shouldn't I? This has destroyed my family. You ever notice that the negative things seem to come down in family lines too? My family never had a job. They never worked. Why should I work? Someone always took care of us. It's ironic how these things just seem to, they just seem to follow the line. We're getting ready to close. I was thinking about some of the things that my dad did for us. When my dad got saved, he got saved. I thank God for that. There's so many cool things. One of the things, you know, I have a very strong belief against drinking. You know, I have a very strong belief against that. And part of that goes back, my biblical perspective, part of that goes back to my grandfather, Richie. He died from liver disease at a young age. <laughs> you know why? wonder why. Oh, really? That's surprising, Grandpa. You got liver disease and you have the moonshine still up in the woods that grandmom has to go and tear down. Grandpa, whenever he'd get mad, he'd get drinking, he'd pick on one of the kids and be mean to them. You know, the, probably the real reason why I don't have a lot of patience with it? Because when my dad got saved, he put his neck on the foot of something that had destroyed many in his family. He said, you're never doing this again to me. He made up his mind, we're not going to go there. We're not going to touch it. 
It's not coming in our house. He put his neck there once and for all. And the thing is, of all of his kids, none of us do that. I'm not spiritual because I've never done drugs or I've not had to have that temptation in front of me. Dad put his neck on that and he just said, you've destroyed enough people in our family. You've brought enough hurt. You've caused enough divorces. You've caused enough prison time. You've caused enough pain. You've caused enough sorrow. You're not doing this anymore. And dad put his foot on the neck there. And you know what he did? And when we were growing up as little kids, dad said, buddy, we don't do that. And we don't need to do that. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. That brings destruction into our family. My kids, I'm going to say this. I do not have control at a certain point in their life. At a certain point in their life, when they grow up, they're going to have to make their own choices and their own decisions. But my kids will never be able to say, my dad said it's okay in a little bit. And then that little bit rise up. And then before long, it takes over. Then my kids will never have that. They will never be able to say, dad said it was okay. Because dad's never going to say it's okay. Why? Because their grandfather, John Ritchie, put his foot on its neck and said, you're not doing this anymore. Now, that's just one small area of our lives. But see, there's many, many other areas of our lives that when you make the decision, if you let things in your home, pornography, lust, greed, selfishness, bitterness, I just don't think that we can live with those things in our lives I think it makes others around us fearful. When we let that garbage within us, it makes people who we are supposed to protect, it makes them vulnerable. My kids will never be able to say, dad says it's okay to slap mom around. Never. There's no way under the sun. There's things that the enemy wants you to say, well, just let it there. It won't hurt to let one of them survive. It won't hurt to let a little bitterness. You know, you'll be surprised when you let a little bitterness in. When you're someone who lets a little bitterness in, your kids pick up on that. You let a little resentment in. You let a little violence in. Someone does something and you curse and throw your hands up and point at them and scream and holler. And your kids pick up on that. And they watch and they say, that's the way it's it's okay to handle that. It's okay. It's all right to let that in, that little bit. And the problem is... You may be able to get through life and make it to heaven. You may be able to make it to heaven with allowing some of these things. We say, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. You probably make it to heaven. Probably along the way, you're going to fight needless battles. I think you'll make it in. I think you'll make Probably along the way, you'll fight some needless battles that you don't need to fight. But I don't know that if you let that hang around. I don't know that it might not grow up and get one of your kids. I don't know that it might not grow up and destroy your nephew, your niece. And if there's the possibility of allowing those things, whatever they are, I told you one thing that was our families. It was our families and it's not an issue for us and But there's a million other things that want to come up and raise themselves up against you and God's family and your children and your future. As we close, this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like everyone to stand with me. 
This is a little different. I don't want to leave room for anything that has the potential. I don't want like a little baby boa constrictor in my house because he grows up. Oh, he's cute. Keep him at the zoo. Take him wherever baby boa constrictors live in the wild. I don't know what country they're from. Take him back there. He's not coming in my house. He's not coming to my yard. If you're my neighbor and your snake comes in my yard, I'm going to kill him because I don't want him in my yard. I'm sorry. You'll be mad, but he's not coming in my yard. Can I just say to you today, can we do something? I want you to know what it feels like to have victory. Not a partial victory, but a complete victory. I want you to know what it feels like to put your foot on the enemy. Something that over the years has destroyed many of your family. The things that have destroyed many of your friends and the people who you care about. It's wrecked havoc on them. I want you to know what it feels like to have it under your feet. So today, I, just it sounds weird, I know. All of our young people, come on up here. Line up across the front. This way, looking this way. Turn and face me. I want you to put your foot up on the second the second one. But what, let some of the weight of your foot rest on that. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Mom and dad, every victory that God brings in your life, you may say, this used to pull at me. This used to control me. This used to have a, a habit on me. But you know what? Whenever you get the victory and you share with them, hey, you know what? Dad, this is what dad used to be. Dad used to be controlled by Anger and bitterness and greed and selfishness and and all of these things. But no more. I want you to put your foot here, son. I want you to know that these habits don't have to control you. That these attitudes don't have to control you. That immorality, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live that way. Would you pray with me for these guys that God would give them? And kind of, can you kind of stick one foot forward too? And what those things in your life that in the past the enemy has used to wreak havoc on your friends and the people around you and he's used to torment you with. Can you just pray over that right now? Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name that you've called these young men and women to walk in victory. Lord, they don't have to be controlled by their physical desires. They don't have to be controlled by the flesh. They don't have to be controlled by selfishness or anger or greed or bitterness or all of these things, Lord. But they can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And today I pray for this congregation. The only place the enemy deserves to be in our lives, the place he was created for, is under our feet. As one who's defeated, as one who's triumphed over, as one who has been utterly brought down. And so God, I pray that you would cause us as parents and as adults to live a life of victory and be able to say to our sons and our daughters and to the next generation, put your foot right here on the enemy's feet. Push down on his head. Because that's what God has made you. God has made you the head and not the tail. Be strong and courageous. Because this is what God will do to all of your enemies as you put your trust in him. Now, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. And God, I pray that today this symbolic act here at the altar, I pray, God, it would become a spiritual reality in each of our lives. And we'll thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.